wonder how loud this is going to be. Are you about to open yours? I guess that's the pre-roll. Welcome to Use Case. I'm Austin Weber. And I'm Clinton Walker. So today our topic is going to be about Turing completeness. We'll sort of dive into what it is, talk about implications of it, and uh, have a fun conversation about why we're talking about it. And before we get started, uh, we'd like to start things off with a segment we call Get Trendy. Um, conveniently enough, I think neither of these actually came from the trending page of GitHub, but... Uh, they definitely didn't. We get to do whatever we want. Right. So <laughs> we've picked a couple of... Uh, repositories on github that we want to talk about and uh, i think i'm gonna start with mine which is a project called open silver so um what is open silver yeah so when clinton saw that this was on the docket for today he asked me what it was and i said we're reviving an old technology with new technology and he took one look at the name <laughs> it definitely looked like silverlight because I can't think of anything that would be called open silver except the one thing that was named silver. And that's exactly what it is. So uh, open silver uh, attempts to revive Silverlight um, through this new fanciness called WASM, WebAssembly. So basically the concept is um, Silverlight died because plugins died. Well, now we have this new way of doing, um, you know, more hardcore um, programming languages in in a browser, which is WebAssembly. Mm -hmm. um, and so the author of OpenSilver um, decided to create um, a new Silverlight-like XAML that could be written, uh, which it runs on top of Blazor, and then Blazor, of course, is .NET's WebAssembly environment. So what, from what I understand of how this project works, uh, it literally does translate uh, these XAML-style views into uh, Blazor. And um, it's a really, really neat uh, project and, and a really neat product. What they're essentially doing, because there is a company that's now behind... OpenSilver, which is an open source repository, um, but what they're doing is migrating individuals uh, off of Silverlight and onto OpenSilver uh, so that they don't have to rewrite apps. And I think that's a really unique take on a new technology. Um, a lot of times we create these new technologies and we say like, all right, everyone should use WASM now. Mm -hmm. Right. And we just ignore the fact that like, I mean, that's great for greenfield projects, but for things that have been in production for years, what do you do with that? You know, um, IE is dying and with it go the way goes, goes Silverlight, which has had no support for a while now. But mm -hmm. when IE goes away, um, it becomes much harder to support Silverlight applications at all because if you can't use IE, you can't use plugins and you can't use Silverlight. I think it's pretty funny with uh, talking about plugins because plugins used to be a really interesting 
important and almost universal thing of how, how things interact with each other, right? So, Silverlight and Flash and Shockwave, all of which were very easy to just get them to do anything by just plugging in something and then it starts executing whatever this flash stuff you wrote was or the shockwave stuff you right. wrote. All of those were also very dangerous and all uh, I think the only one of those that's still alive is flash technically because I think shockwave and silverlight are both actually about dead now. Yeah. Um and flash is going out within the next couple of years. And that's a big thing of those technologies were a little bit too wild westy. Yeah, they weren't secure. No, for sure, they weren't secure at all. And I think that's uh, that's an important thing to to think about. It, you know, there are people who really really liked the development platform that Silverlight was, um, and I think that's fair uh, because it kind of mimics WPF, and a lot of people love WPF. Mm-hmm. So I understand loving it from a you know, development perspective, but when you think about the deployment of it, you do have these security vulnerabilities. A plugin system does allow for arbitrary code execution. And mm-hmm. so I think Wasm is a better fit for this because it allows this plugin style, right? Mm-hmm. Where you can develop your own development platform and do what is essentially arbitrary code execution, but in a sandbox. And we've developed these standards for what can and can't happen in WebAssembly. And and I think that's a key part of this is saying like, I think that's what's really interesting about this project is it it's not just about migrating old apps over. It's about kind of reviving Silverlight because this is the environment that Silverlight wanted to be. Right. It just wasn't super secure. And eventually the the quote unquote internet as an entity decided... We don't like plugins. Right. Which is, I mean, Apple decided that, but. <laughs> there have been a lot of uh, a lot of interesting things in seeing, especially technologies like Silverlight and Flash specifically, because they used to be so prominent. Yeah. Um, Netflix is an interesting example where they had Silverlight and HTML5 support in parallel for right. a certain period of time. I think they might have ditched their Silverlight by now, I would imagine they, they have to have. I'm pretty sure it's gone entirely. But I remember just a few years ago, they were still ha- uh, hosting Silverlight support right. alongside HTML5. Now that HTML5 is more more mature too, it doesn't make a lot of sense to keep Silverlight support at all. Yeah, they they would have had to have ditched Silverlight because um, Chrome does not do Silverlight. Um, in fact. I think most major web browsers accept, which I don't know if we can consider, i.e. a major web browser anymore. It's hard to, in but, a way. Um, I think i.e. was really the only one that was still supporting Silverlight, period. Mm-hmm. Um, Silverlight does not ro- does not load in Chrome. Um, there is no plugin system anymore. You can have Silverlight installed on the machine. does not matter. Um, Chrome won't load Silverlight things. Yeah, uh, a project like this could have interesting implications for businesses because there seems to be a propensity for businesses and government entities that are both really, really common in doing this, writing things for a very specific platform in a very specific way. So uh, a lot of like business portals 
like mm-hmm. uh, employee self-management and things like that were used to be written specifically for Internet Explorer. Um, and now that Internet Explorer is almost twice removed as being, actually it is twice removed now, being Microsoft's web browser, because now they're going with their new Chromium, uh, Chromium platform. Edge, yeah. yeah. That means that uh, those things wouldn't work depending on what they were written in, depending yeah. on how they were written. So these kind of uh, projects that are based on taking something and porting it while basically providing a wrapper for that technology. That's a really a really interesting concept of yeah. how do you wrap it and then break it down to something that is safer because the whole reason it was abandoned was because of mostly security concerns and also it just wasn't keeping up with new things that came out. Yeah, and I think it's it's interesting, you know, you say, you know, a lot of businesses and, and government entities, you know, develop things for for IE and that seems unreasonable now right mm-hmm. in the world we live in today you would never develop for a single browser mm-hmm. but also in the world we live in today you'd never develop for a single platform either when you go to build an app you want it to run everywhere right right that's the expectation that's not that's not fanciful and i think when a lot of these systems were built i mean if you're thinking about the age of silverlight mm-hmm. when a lot of these systems were built it didn't seem that unreasonable Right, i.e., every most every business person was running Windows. I.e., was the default internet browser. Right, Chrome wasn't big, maybe, you know, and, and so it doesn't completely seem unreasonable in that frame of mind. Without thinking about what would happen in the future, and I don't know that you could know what will happen, but in that moment, it makes sense. Uh, the thing that sucks about that is then you lock yourself in. Right. And so here we are 10 years later and Silverlight is dead. Uh, IE is dying. And you invested heavily in writing this specific, you know, line of business application years ago, right? And have been supporting it ever since. And it fits your needs. Mm-hmm. You know, I think a lot of people will, will in the software development realm, will like kind of thumb their nose, you know, at, at, at you know, at some of these older projects and i've been i've been responsible for that too but they serve the need and it might be a case where the business doesn't have the kind of funds to really like you know invest in that and so if it's serving their needs then you know what's wrong with that the only thing that's wrong with that now is that they won't be able to access it right and that that's really a thing of uh especially with internal business applications is that it isn't important how accessible your application is because if you if you considered the scenario that all major web browsers didn't run on standards in any way between each other if you told your employees to use uh chrome for a certain application especially a, a completely internal application that doesn't matter to you because that's really the situation that a lot of people are put in now of if it's if it's an internal business application, well, you just use Internet Explorer for that one thing, and then use whatever you want for everything else you do because right. it's yeah. it's just built for Internet you Explorer. Can, you can dictate that, right? Like that's not uh, yeah. so. In those scenarios, it really there's nothing that behooves you to do anything differently if it's especially the cheaper route because right. you know it's probably cheaper to do it that way if you have someone who is. Uh, especially if you're 
outsourcing it to someone else, assuming you don't have an internal team to do it for you, they go, well, we can just kind of slap this thing together, Internet Explorer, it'll do this, it'll be secure, and then you just force everyone to use it. It's it's pretty yeah. easy that way. Well, and I think that's another, again, another draw that Silverlight had was uh, it kind of was like, hey, are you a desktop developer? You can build crazy cool web apps now. Mm-hmm. And it's just like if you were developing a desktop app. So... Uh, again, I, I can see that draw. I can see why Silverlight. I mean, now we look at it. A lot of people look at it and think, why did we? Why did we write these things in Silverlight? Like it's dead, mm-hmm. you know. But I, I think there there is a lot of um, there's a certain amount of sense that 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 you could see at the time that it made some sense to do something like that. So right, it's a cool project. Um, I would be interested in in trying to use it, but um, really, I would need. Uh, a use case. I'm not going to develop an, a brand new Silverlight application, right? Uh, but if I could migrate something over to this, I think that would be kind of fun just to see um, how it would work. Mm-hmm. You know. Well, let's uh, move away from this uh, uh, old thing um, and talk <laughs> about my really cool new thing. So my. <laughs> My pick for the Get Trendy is kind of funny because it is an old thing as a new thing. So this is called Ktor. Um, I'm assuming it's pronounced Ktor because that sounds the coolest and it's not called Kator, I hope. Um, Basically, uh, if anyone uh, listens to this consistently, I chose... uh, a framework for making web applications in Go previously called Jin. Um, we did talk about Jin. We did talk about Jin. Jin is kind of a, a weird and almost uh, cumbersome thing at times because I, I started working with it a little bit. I actually did try to rewrite some things in Jin to see how well they would work. Um, it, it's a little bit cumbersome because mm-hmm. it's it's that thing of... Uh, especially with these higher languages like Go, where you take a bunch of stuff and you do a bunch of things inline using these uh, templated formats that are like, you do a thing at this endpoint, it does this with a Git request, yada, yada. Mm-hmm. It can be a little bit weird looking, especially just jumbled up together, right? Um, KTOR is very similar to that because it's kind of the same idea, of making a web application, but in Kotlin. So it parallels a lot with Jin in that it's a library written for making these web applications. A big thing about it is, you know, that good concurrency, asynchronous connections, setting up endpoints very easily. Mm-hmm. So it just gives you options straight through the library to set up endpoints in a way that are straightforward and very similar to what you would see in regular web development or in languages that are specifically suited to web development, right? So when you're using JavaScript for a lot of things, uh, JavaScript libraries and JavaScript APIs are written in a way that it just it makes a lot of sense when you format things. You format it out and it's very readable, right? Mm-hmm. With uh, a lot of these higher languages, especially since Kotlin doesn't lend itself very naturally to web development in the way that a lot of scripting languages do, right? right? Python is a little bit more natural for something like that. But Kotlin, since it is 
very easily used as a scripting language because it was designed to be used either uh, really in any way as a scripting language, an object-oriented language, a functional language. It was really designed to be general in a way that it has different file types for how you use the language, right? Mm-hmm. So it's it's very interesting that they leverage this uh, scripting ability that Kotlin has, especially when you think about it that way, that it has such a nice, concise uh, syntax to it that you can lay out these good these good calls and do these good asynchronous uh, web setups without having to go through a language like Java, which would make this incredibly violent. Right. Um, it would be very hard to get that through a language like that. So they do leverage Kotlin very well in that. It's a very good, succinct uh, syntax that they use for it. And there are examples that they have of these Ktor uh, web services, Ktor web uh, applications, right, that really show that it is very succinct and that it can do uh, a very good job at doing gets posts and things like that in a very quick and easy to read scripting-like fashion. So it's actually pretty good. Uh, Go is also leveraged toward this, right? So for the, the Gen platform, it was pretty good at it since Go has a very nice, succinct syntax in a lot of ways, too, um, which is the thing that we look at a lot when we talk about scripting languages like Python, where, oh, it's so succinct. Oh, you write pseudocode and you accidentally write Python, <laughs> which is also a bad thing because who really knows what that Python is doing anyway? But Colin gives you a little bit of a nicer syntax with more explicitness without uh, weighing you down with all of that uh, Java nonsense. So I, I really like what they're doing with this. Uh, I think Kotlin has done uh, a very good job of expanding its ecosystem, either through the JetBrains contributions or through other third-party contributions of things like this, the Exposed library, uh, all these other different Kotlin libraries. Arrow KT is another one for functional programming. So their ecosystem is becoming very nice. Yeah, this this is a really cool project. And I, I'm looking at some of the samples you were talking about, and they've got this like this chat application, and it's like three files, and one of those is like a test. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's really just like the the application itself, and then a server to to you know um, to do to handle all the WebSocket connections and everything. And and I mean that's it's really I mean these are some long-ish files, but it's a lot of comments and, and kind of documentation. Um, it's really neat. It looks really, really clean. Um, I've seen this kind of trend in other languages um, towards these kind of like really succinct, no fuss uh, kind of, you know, try to create a quick web app that does three things mm-hmm. kind of stuff. Um I think .NET has started to do some of that stuff. They've got, you know, um, there's like, I think a new thing in either .NET 5 or maybe it's coming in .NET 6 that's like, um, you never longer need to have a a main in your program. So if you have like a console app, uh, it's just like the first thing that you have in the file is like main and you can just like, do whatever mm-hmm. um so kind of removing some of that cruft um and that i've seen people use things like that along with some new syntax to create like this is a web app 
web API in a single file. It does two things. It has a get and a post, but that's all it does. But it's mm -hmm. in one file and it's two methods. Mm -hmm. um, that kind of stuff is really cool. Um, just because um, not everything, not every every problem requires it to be solved with some giant solution with, you know, 400 files and like, you know, this complicated, well, you know, over here we set up our DI containers and then like, you know, this, you know, not everything, some things need to be solved with like just a little like, just a, you know, just a couple of endpoints. Like I right. just want to say like, you know, so... And I think there's there's various ways that people have solved those kinds of problems. I think this is an interesting one um, because this also, I think, from what I've seen in some of the samples, it also scales kind of nicely. Mm -hmm. So not only do you have like solve the simple case kind of easily with with a minimal code and a nice syntax, but also like, um, also like, um if you have a bigger application, some of these samples are a little bigger mm -hmm. and even in those scaled out instances, it looks nice. Right. Um, it, it still holds that. So I think that's interesting. It's, I think a similar thing is, um, you know, whether it's AWS or Azure, they have those like serverless functions, right. Mm -hmm. And you can build entire applications that just like, well, most of the stuff happens client side. And then like every once in a while I need to send something off to some store somewhere. And so I just call this function. Right. Or that function. Uh, and it's kind of a similar kind of setup. It's just little like endpoints that you're describing, you know, this is this endpoint and it does a couple of things. Right. Reducing things to that kind of unit format can yeah. be really useful for all kinds of operations. Yeah. So reducing things to be very succinct and be very straightforward that this is a unit, a method, uh, some kind of executable function that just does something and then you get a response back or it goes and yeah. does update something, which is very, very similar with uh, AWS Lambda yeah. in that sense of you have this function, it's defined, yeah. it does something, that's all you need it to do. And for a lot of a lot of different kind of applications, especially simple ones that are just the, the basic idea of using endpoints to update information or to give you something back when you ask for it. Right, and I, I think this is probably to some degree um a reflection of um kind of the the growing ecosystem of iot mm -hmm. because um you know i hate to use the buzzwords but like on on a serious note like the more you have these small devices that just need to do a couple of things mm -hmm. right the more it doesn't make any sense okay so i've got this one little sensor right that i want when it you know, hits these parameters, it needs to like, let me know. Mm -hmm. Do I want to build up a whole like complicated solution for that? Or do I just want to say like, I need this thing to call a function? Yeah. So there have been some interesting things in the history of like Python, because Python is really useful for things that don't need to scale, mm -hmm. which is kind of funny to look at in a way where, Scaling Python can actually be incredibly painful. So when you take a Python project and it starts out small, especially with web API requests of, I have like a humidity sensor or a door sensor of something. IoT works really well with Python on, you define a function and then it just goes, okay, 
sensor did thing when uh, hit this function fires off and it sends some request to something using an IoT server or something right. like that, right? Uh, Python has some problem scaling because when you get to large scale Python projects, all of that uh, all of that assumption that goes into writing Python on what is what type is something and why is something written the way it is and why do right. people use two two letter imports for naming things i don't i still don't really understand that <laughs> but uh this this kind of thing would be if you need to scale something like that like a web api like th- these these kinds of uh libraries these kinds of solutions are becoming much more common in almost every single language yeah it's not just python anymore that does iot it's right. well, very I mean, expanded now. And I think, again, like like I said, I think this is kind of the, the growth of IoT kind of influencing the different languages and environments because, right. you know, you want that, that. I think that's I think what we're describing is exactly the 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 solution to the IoT problem. The IoT problem is I want this one little sensor to do this one thing. Right. Right. But also. Once I have that one sensor that does that one thing, I want to have a billion of them. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Or I want more than one of them, but I want them to do different things. And so you build out these kind of like one off little like, well, it's a system, but it's asynchronous and it's, you know, it's based on these various sensors and these various um, smaller computers that are just, they're really specific. Right. And so you want really like dialed down like specific functions and specific things you want to kick off based on each of them. And so it's it's purpose-built endpoints. It's not saying like, well, these are the three different ways I would use this endpoint. When you're building a website, that's reasonable. Mm-hmm. There are maybe three or four contexts in which I might want to like grab users. Right. And I may not want to build three or four different endpoints for that because I mean why not just like tell the endpoint like, hey, this is the stuff I want, and then like have it, you know? But that's complicated. Mm-hmm. What we're talking here is like really like slick, slimmed down, like this targeted. This is the thing I want to do. I just want to call a function, right? I just right. want to call a function, receive some some response, right? And this type of code, like these these setups for uh, API endpoints, can be super useful in that realm of. I want to make something it needs to have uh, endpoints to hit, but you don't want to spin up some new project if you were writing uh, server-side or or writing some core functionality in Kotlin. You don't want to fire up some new project in a new language to do endpoints for something. You can establish those endpoints using this library very easily as opposed to using something that's more... Uh, groundbreaking requiring, mm-hmm. I guess is the way to put it. Like you have to really build up how it's going to function and how it's going to actually work. Well, this just builds up how it works for you. And then you quickly write endpoints that go, okay, I have like a hundred thousand line Kotlin project. I need endpoints to do something quickly. Yeah. This gives you a solution to do that by just importing something. Yeah. That's, that's an amazing step in the thing we see now of almost every language trying to become more and more general to, solve every type of problem which is a which is a downfall for some languages but right uh in this case it seems to be very clean also you know very officially supported so that helps with the guarantees of safety and things like that that you wouldn't get in 
a, some random node package that might not turn out to be very good after all. Now, there's one last thing I want to say about this, uh, and that is because as I was digging through it, I did find um, how they write the, the front-end side of this, mm-hmm. and um, that part I hate. <laughs> yeah, that's always a problem. Um, <laughs> if I remember correctly, when I was messing around with Jen, it was very much just... Hey, web page, HTML stuff, all of this stuff just kind of ba- basically uh, tossed in. So just very, we're just yeah. gonna just throw this in there, I, and that's that's very common for frameworks like this. I just really dislike the syntax of how they're describing UI here. Right, um, it feels gross. Um, uh, that's things like um, the Google Web Toolkit, which is very like that even yeah. when you come up with these sophisticated ways to describe something, it turns out awful. I mean, the the thing is, is everyone can hate on HTML as much as they want. I think that's part of the success of React is JSX. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's part of the reason why XAML is so popular. Like, describing UI in that way makes sense to people. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that's because we've been trained to have it make sense because HTML is to- so prevalent. Or if it's just because, like, it makes sense. I don't know. Uh, I, but all I know is, like, I, I, I came across this login page file for for this thing, and, and I like died inside a little bit. So. Yeah, <laughs> that's it's a big it's a big issue with setting things this way because it it becomes. Yeah especially on that UI side of no matter how clean it is on the endpoint side, that thing that you might just be trying to connect with some like right. pure backend code and you just need an endpoint to work with it. No, I think, I think in that case, this really shines right. for sure. Um, it's, you know, I, I think when you're trying to write like a one-off or, you know, just a couple of endpoints to do a couple of really targeted things, this makes a lot of sense. Um, it's just, you know, I, I think where they could improve is how they describe UI and, and right. that's a, it's a tough problem. Not going to lie. Uh, it always has been right. Um, but so, uh, I just wanted to put my two cents in there cause I saw it and uh, it, it, it's really an interesting <laughs> thing that you see these, these frameworks might have a solution of ham fist HTML into a block or. Right. We're gonna we're gonna GWT write it, and we're gonna basically use interfaces to describe web elements, and then that's yeah. gonna turn into absolute nonsense to ever yeah. trace. It's gross. It's gross. Um, all right. Well, I think we spent enough time time on so. our get trendy. Uh, we kind of went in deep today, which is kind of fun. That was um, a while. These are both really interesting projects. So um, they're they're pretty interesting. Um, they both of them are trying to accomplish something for. Uh, what might be the wrong reasons morally, but <laughs> who really knows? I love it. All right, so let's dig into this main uh, topic. I guess uh, the the first question I have for you, Clinton, is uh, what the hell is Turing completeness? Okay. <laughs> so <laughs> Turing completeness is a really funny term because it gets brought up a lot in a lot of different ways. Um, What it really refers to is something that you find in your classical computer science study of uh, automata theory, right? 
when you talk about an automata theory, it's actually really funny because uh, you talk about what Turing machines are. And Turing machines are five-tuple data structure, do something. I don't remember. Seven-tuple? <laughs> Who knows how That's many? Some words. Um, <laughs> but when you break it down to like what a, a Turing machine is, and you talk about Turing completeness, sometimes you get lost in why why you're talking about it. So Turing completeness is really a very abstract concept that's supposed to explain something important and it's easier to explain it when you start breaking it down so let's talk about what a turing machine is right Uh, a turing machine is a thing that exists abstractly we're still stuck on being abstract about it right so the turing machine is basically a vhs uh, VCR player, VC- VHS player, VCR. That's what they're called. VCRs. VCR. There you right. go. Right. <laughs> so you take uh, a tape, uh, especially a uh, metallic, those uh, magnetic tapes. Right. Right. So right. you have a magnetic tape, but but the magnetic tape isn't just like a, a, a VHS where it's a long tape and you just imprint things on it. We're talking about it like it's a magnetic tape that has little boxes on it, basically, right? So everything in that magnetic tape has its own designated little box. When we think about that, it's kind of easy to think about it like a movie reel, how movie reels that were for, that were filmed on that, that IMAX format were little boxes, little and you record things onto each of the little frames, and then right. you run them all, and it plays a movie, right? So if you think about it like that, that's the kind of tape we're talking about, right? Just a little magnetic tape, and it has little boxes. Uh, what do we put in the boxes? I don't know. Uh, we're putting something in the boxes, probably numbers, because computers <laughs> really like numbers, right? So we have a tape, and we need something to work with the tape. So we have a head. That's the two main parts to what a Turing machine is. You have a little head that interacts with the tape. You move the tape back and forth, one cell at a time, we're not doing any wacky like poking between cells at the same time or anything like that. You move back and forth one cell, you do something to it. You move to another cell, you do something to it. So in itself, a Turing machine can read what's on a cell on that tape. It can write something to a cell on that tape, and it can move the tape around. So we're really focusing on the tape itself, and then the machine can read or write something on the cell that it's currently looking at, right? Right. And and to break this back into the abstract, because we're talking about a physical machine. Right. But in the abstract, the tape could be any storage. Right. Period. And we're still just talking about these two operations, right? right. We're really talking about, like, I have this storage medium, and I can read from the storage medium, or I can write to the storage medium, and that's really all we're talking about. Right. So that's the current idea of storing something and then accessing and changing the thing that's stored there. So Turing machines are pretty funny because there aren't a lot of rules outside of like these mathematical definitions, but the rule is you make the Turing machine do something by telling it you can go left or right on your tape and you can read and write things on the cell that you're currently looking at. So the Mm -hmm. rules really revolve around you can move the thing around, change it and read it, and... The way that you describe what it does outside of that is just 
well, if this cell here says something, you can move this many cells over and do this thing over here. And that puts us at a really interesting place because it's basically a machine that looks at something, says, I'm going to go over here and do something. And then I'm going to read this next thing. I'm going to go over here and do something. And that kind of doesn't mean anything to us in terms of what modern computers are because we don't think about computers that way. But computers are actually a really interesting simil uh, parallelism to draw with Turing machines because computers and Turing machines are the same. Right. But why are they the same? They're the same because a hard drive is really a magnetic tape. Right. And actually that's a pretty good similarity because hard drives are magnetic. Now, if you use those fancy new solid-state drives, I don't know about those. but um, <laughs> We don't use those here. We don't use any of those around here, even though uh, I don't know if there's a hard drive in here. But uh, so we have modern computers, and it's really funny because there's sort of a, a mathematical background to this, that if a computer can do the things a Turing machine can do, that makes it a Turing machine. So... Our modern computers are able to use our hard drives. They can look at it. Mm -hmm. They can see what's there. They can rotate it around. They can write stuff on it, stuff like that. It also extends to like memory in a computer. Of You can go through the memory in a computer, look at what's there, change it, move around in what you're looking at in your memory. Of you know, Maybe you have 64 gigabytes of memory in your computer. That's a lot. But it can view each of those as individual things. Each right. spot in your memory is an individual thing that it can look at, and it can go through it and say, well, that says this. I'm going to go here and do this. That is a Turing machine. Right. And that's essentially what all programming languages do, right? Yes. Programming languages are kind of built around the concept of like... Um, read thing. Read thing from memory, right? Mm -hmm. perform some operation, write thing to memory. <laughs> right. And that's really uh, all you're ever doing for right. some reason. Seems weird, but that's all you're ever really doing is reading something, writing something, and then you set up the structure of how the, it how it manipulates things based right. on what it's reading and writing. The, the rules around right. when you read and write and why. Right. And that's really the rules of a Turing machine is... It reads something, it writes something, and it moves around. But besides that, you're really setting the other structures for why it's reading something or what it does when it reads something and why it writes something. Right. So that's really very similar. So that's cool. So let's go back to Turing completeness because I started going on about Turing machines. Okay, so what does it matter if your computer is a Turing machine? Well, if your computer is a Turing machine... That means your computer is Turing complete. So there's really two things that a machine has to do to be Turing complete. The first one is conditional branching. So conditional branching can actually manifest in a lot of different ways. So back in the really old days of languages like Algol, which we'll reference Algol. You don't have to know anything about Algol other than... Uh, <laughs> The early versions were very simple, but very interesting. They were written back around the late 50s to 60s, I believe. So you had, uh, in the early days, go-to statements, if I remember correctly, too, in those. So go-to statements were something very old 
and they were very interesting that uh, you basically said if a thing is equal to this or if something is like this, go somewhere else in a program and do something. Well, that's conditional branching. Even before that, we had the early assembly type languages. And those languages could also do that same thing as a go-to, where they had branching conditions, where, oh, I'm at uh, this line in my one million line assembly code because it's super long to do anything. And you say, okay, this thing's equal to zero. I want to go over here. And then it goes to some other part in the assembly code. That is conditional branching. And nowadays, if you're used to a language like Java, if statements and things like that are conditional branching. Your ifs, your switches. Yes. Those kinds of things. So if you go to an if statement and you ask, oh, is this number equal to zero? That's conditional branching. So you meet that one requirement. The other requirement is pretty simple, too, because we talk about Turing machines. They maintain memory. So a Turing machine has something that it can access. It can store stuff and read stuff from it. That is the second requirement, that it is able to branch and do things based on the value of something, It basically, and that it's able to maintain memory so it can read the value of something and do something off of that. Right. So as long as you have some kind of machine that can uh, hold values so that it can update and read them and then it can do something based on those values, that really makes it a Turing machine and that makes it Turing complete. So what's a more interesting example than just what a computer is? So there's a funny program called Conway's Game of Life. Conway's Game of Life is really just based on... It's actually called a cellular automata, is what it's called. So it's... Big words. Yes, yes. Automata. (laughs) An automata is a machine. A cellular automata is a machine that's supposed to act like uh, amoebas or something. Think of it like that. (laughs) So Conway's Game of Life is a bunch of amoebas doing stuff. And the amoebas are affected by two things. They do stuff based on what is around them, and they have a current state that they are in. So with modern languages, it's kind of a funny thing that we can actually determine if a language is Turing complete based on Conway's game of life. So we can determine if a language meets the requirements of a Turing machine because if it's able to draw little amoebas doing stuff, little little uh, cellular structures, and then it can make those cellular structures do something based on what's around them and based on their environment. So if it can do those two things, it's a Turing-complete language. And, and that seems a little bit arbitrary as to why we care if we can draw little cells and then make them do something based on what's around them, right? What is the point of that? Well, I'm not going to tell you. Uh, instead, <laughs> I think we'll throw it back. Um, did you have anything about the the Conway or anything? No, but I mean, um, it's it's really weird. But you, when you when you take this abstract thing, you realize uh, you can kind of apply it all over the place. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's I think what's what's kind of interesting about this as a concept is that. Um, very quickly you realize um, 
that, for instance, we were talking about computers. Well, computers are like multiple Turing machines in one because mm-hmm. uh, you can think of um, you can think of your hard drive as being memory, mm-hmm. right? And we do all the things all the time where we read from mem- read from the hard drive and then decide what to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do that every time we access a file, <laughs> right? Right. We say like, "Oh, I need to find this file," and and the computer is saying like, "Well, okay, so where's that file at?" Well, uh, I read this. You know, this directory says that you know it's indexed somewhere over here, and I read this block, and it says, "Ah, you're close, but not quite. You need to move over there." And so, um, and then of course, files oftentimes are are actually stored across multiple uh, sectors of a disk. So mm-hmm. you're doing a ton of that. Right. right, a ton of that. Like, well, um, it's actually over here, so I need to grab this and I need to load that, and mm-hmm. that's just one aspect, you know. And that's a funny thing to think about with a hard drive, especially that. Oh, it's what you call fragmentation of a file, right? So if a file is stored in like eighteen different places on some disk, well, you can read those and then load them into memory. And you're taking basically one thing from one storage place, putting it in this other storage right. place. And then we have a second Turing machine, right? That then right. reaches into memory instead of the disk. And and it's, you know, doing some, oh, well, uh, you wanted to make this change. So I'm going to go into this bit of memory and we're going to swap that out. And right. you wanted to do this. And, and so... So your modern computer is really like a Turing machine that plays with all these different ways of storing things especially when you get into like caching it's it's, if you if you think about it it's multiple turing machines configured to be one big turing machine and Mm -hmm. that's where it gets crazy i mean especially you know if you consider um you know also you know if you have a graphics card well then that graphics card has some internal memory and Mm -hmm. it's doing its own little turing machine stuff of like well you know we you know we've got to load this and we've got to pull this and i need to cache this and Mm -hmm. and so uh, it's it's turtles all the way down (laughs) it's funny to think about how many thinking machines you have inside that one thinking machine right it's very strange and this is this is as i said i think what's interesting to kind of impress here is that this is such an abstract term that it scales out Mm -hmm. pretty crazily um and you can get crazily meta about it because your laptop is a Turing machine comprised mm-hmm. of other Turing machines mm-hmm. that are likely comprised of other Turing machines. Consider this. A CPU, right, is also has tiny bits of memory. Right. <laughs> so while the CPU is interacting with the actual main memory, right, that we're talking about, you know, mm-hmm. your actual RAM, it is its own Turing machine that's writing little bits of memory. And remembering smaller bits, so like I said, turtles all the way down. Like where where you can go pretty small and still find this concept, you right? Know, it's fundamental to to computing. And processors are a funny one because the reason that we have these other storage places in the processor near the processor, uh, it's faster to use this one storage place that's in the processor as opposed to using the storage place that's further away from the processor because of physics. Right. That's funny because we don't need to have all these different storage places to make it run, but to make it run better, we decide that we need all of these different storage places. And that's a very interesting concept. So let me go back to like what a Turing complete machine really implies if you have 
a computer that's Turing complete and all these other different things are Turing complete and you have Turing complete things inside Turing complete things. That means (laughs) something really, really interesting comes about because if something is Turing complete, that means that it can do the same thing that any other Turing complete thing can do. So if your computer is a Turing machine, that means that it can do anything any other Turing machine can do. So when we talk about something being Turing complete, we're really saying that there's this parallel in what they can do, which is everything, but not also everything, because it can do anything that is computable, right? Right. So uh, there are some things that show like what is computable and what is not, but... That's a very interesting concept that, like, if you have this one machine and it can do any of those things that prove that it is a Turing machine, then it's the same as some supercomputer that's also a Turing machine. They can do the same things at different speeds and in different capacities, right? but they can do the same thing at some rate compared to each other. Right. So even if it takes you 20 years, what it takes the supercomputer five seconds, you can do the same thing in a different speed. Well, and I think the interesting thing about that, there's there's two interesting aspects to that. One is the one you mentioned, right? Which is that like, um, my phone is a Turing machine. Mm-hmm. My laptop is a Turing machine. Mm-hmm. So hypothetically, they can do the same things, right? Right. I would never ask my phone to do certain things that I ask my laptop to do. Why? Simply from a performance standpoint, right? The speed at which those things are going to happen. Right. And so you've drawn that parallel with, say, a laptop to a supercomputer. Mm-hmm. But if you think about it, then to me, the next logical question is, like, how far back can we go? Um, if my laptop is a Turing machine, then maybe uh, a BlackBerry from, you know, the, you know, early 2000s as a Turing machine, well, Mm -hmm. then, like, how far back uh, can we go and still find actual Turing machines that hypothetically could do anything given, you know, infinite time and resources? Well, I guess we we can go back because there are some really interesting examples of things to go back to. Uh, I guess it would... I guess it's an important thing to note that the word computer is kind of funny because computers used to not be machines right computers were actually physical people so this is going to be i I maybe shouldn't admit this but i did not realize this until watching uh hidden figures (laughs) (laughs) Uh, i think that was the exact moment that i realized that uh there was a time when computers were people (laughs) right uh and that's really strange to think about that because if we look at supercomputers today, uh, supercomputers aren't just people, which they actually used to be people. They used to be people who could compute in a super way. Uh, supercomputers now, when we talk about processing time, like, oh, it takes this computer three years to calculate this thing and it generates this much data. Well, people can do that too. Right. But it takes a lot of people splitting up a lot of work into different Right. different things. So it used to be that there were entire buildings devoted to people sitting at a desk using a pencil and an abacus and doing calculations by hand. That used to be a real profession was being a computer. Um, and it kind of breaks down the word for you in a way when you start thinking about computer being a, 
a real professional title as opposed to a device. So what are some really early examples of non-human computers, right? Like when do we move past human beings doing calculations by hand? Because Isaac Newton doing proofs for calculus by hand seems like a reasonable thing in a way because that's right. a hard problem. But how do we get past Isaac Newton needing to calculate something incredibly large with his calculus that he can't do with proofs? So in the 1800s, there was a guy named Charles Babbage. And Charles Babbage had uh, an interesting story also with his wife, Ada Lovelace. So that was a very interesting story of like who Ada, Ada Lovelace also was, which a lot of people recognize her name because she was the uh, supreme thinker of what computers would do one day. Well, what Charles Babbage made or didn't make, I guess is better to say, <laughs> was the first example of a real computational machine that could do something if you told it to do it. So it was called the difference machine. Um, it was made for doing polynomial mathematical formulas, so mm -hmm. it would solve polynomial formulas, and it would say, boop, 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 here's the answer, right? <laughs> um, as we expect a computer to do. Yeah. Now, what's funny is that he never actually got to complete it because uh, it wasn't possible at the time. Because manufacturing, the you know the economic industrial boom wasn't until the late 1890s to the 1900s, right, where we started producing things in a more uh, direct and high, or sorry, low tolerance fashion right. of we need to make this gear for this uh, Model T, but it kind of can't be like an inch of uh, error on right. how it runs. Right. It we need to build it to a, a degree where it is very precise. Yeah, we need precision in our, in our, um, in our, manufacturing processes right because complex machines need high precision to yeah. function correctly charles babbage didn't have that luxury so when he was a man in the early 1800s he came up with this idea for the difference machine much like uh, da vinci did for his flying machine but charles babbage actually designed a computing machine that worked uh, and it was proven in the year 1991 when someone actually, the, a team built it based on tolerances of the 19th century that you could actually build this thing if you had the right machinery to build it, uh, put all the gears together, put all these different parts together, and it actually worked. He came up with something that worked without ever building it. So that was a very interesting thing that he was such a forethinker who came up with a thing that he could never build in his lifetime. So right. and then this turn this thing turns out to be a true computer. It's turned yes. complete. Um, and so we've got this example of a device that had it been <laughs> had, had it, it worked at that time. Built, right. Successfully built at that time uh, could have been the first computer, the first right. thing that we would later recognize to be um you know, a modern computing device. Right, and later on we had things that were very similar to the difference machine, but if the difference machine had been built at that time, we would have been looking at about 100 years of technological advancement. That, right there, is the premise of my next sci-fi novel. Oh. So Your you next sci-fi novel? Do you have <laughs> one sci-fi novel? <laughs> okay, you caught me. <laughs> 
my next sci-fi uh, novel. Also, my first one. You don't know. I mean, I might be writing under a pen name, but in, anyway. Um. <laughs> Waston Eber. So, <laughs> Charles Babbage came up with this cool idea. It didn't work out in the time period he needed to work out before he died. But it was later on that someone by the name of Konrad Zuss, who is a German scientist, um, Conrad and Charles were both, I, I believe they were both considered polymaths in the fact that uh, they were incredibly talented at many different things. Um, Conrad was actually a really interesting person because he made what was the first Turing machine uh, that was a real uh, built computer, right? So it was actually built at that time in the 1940s, 1941, I believe it was. So... <laughs> The uh, Z3, as it was called, was a very interesting machine. It could do the exact same things as Charles Babbage's difference machine. The exact same things. But it was a little bit different because it had a real clock speed to it. So it was actually capable of running at about 5 hertz, about 5.33 hertz, which means that it ran about 5 mathematical operations a second. That's pretty fast for uh something that was better than doing it by hand right right right. um now we're we're comparing it to people computers (laughs) yes so if you had people sitting in a room writing things down uh by hand this was pretty fast like that that was that was pretty fast but conrad's machine was a little bit imperfect it didn't have proper branching it was more of a we're just going to figure things out the hard way and see which mm-hmm. one's right. But it was definitely something that worked. So the thing that Charles and Conrad both made were both capable of the same kinds of problems, solving the same kinds of problems at very different speeds. And today, if we look at what computers can actually do, computers run in about the 4 gigahertz range for right. a single processor, right? That's 4 billion operations in a second. That's a lot faster. That's actually like taking uh, twice the population of the Earth and having it do a math problem at once. Right. That's absolutely insane. It's crazy. Um, when you think about it that way, uh, that the K- the Z3 wasn't actually that impressive because <laughs> it didn't do anything like that. But that's what's very funny is that these modern computers that run it billions of operations a second are capable of the same things that the Z3 was capable of doing. The yeah, computer that was able to run at five operations a second. That's that's the thing that I think is, is kind of a unique and interesting uh, you know, side to this whole concept is that really we've been doing the same thing for forever with computers. All we're doing is changing the resources. Right. Right? That's the thing that Turing completeness doesn't, like address it, it essentially says, um, you know, absent constraints of memory and time, right? These it does, things it can does do thing. anything, and and that's what we're saying is like, okay, well, if we speed up how fast we can do things, then time becomes less of a factor, and if we, you know, can um, cram more memory onto a chip, then resources become less of a factor. Right, and that's all we've been doing in in these various evolutions is uh, refining um, and addressing the constraints, not mm-hmm. changing what can be done, right? Uh, but 
changing how quickly it can be done, uh, how much of it can be done. Changing um, how something is accessed and changing, like the difference between hard drives and solid state drives. Right. We it's, can literally just do things faster, not by changing what kind of thing we're using it's still a thing that permanently stores data well, but we're changing how fast that that device is we swap one out for the other one and, and this faster. one's instantly faster and and the other the the other again the other side of that is consider the fact that you know 10 15 20 years ago um you know we're the the amount of memory you would expect the average machine to have um and the amount of storage you would expect the average machine to have means that, I mean, if you'd have told a game developer in the early 2000s that one of the major titles of the year would be 60 gigs mm-hmm. to download, to, to install, they'd have laughed at you. Mm-hmm. They'd have called you insane. They'd say, people don't have that kind of space. People don't have that kind of space. And what are you doing with 60 gigs anyway? <laughs> What, what you don't can have you enough... really? What are you fitting in there? Right. Is it, is what, it the I entire mean... universe? <laughs> um, we don't have enough RAM to access half that stuff anyway. And like, why would you need all that? Right. right? And now we're like, well, I mean, I mean, who's gonna be like, ah, oh, sixty gigs? I don't. I can't download that. Which I mean, some people are, but right. The expectation now is that most devices have enough storage that's just like, ah, what's sixty gigs? Yeah, right. Forget about it. And it's often used to abuse those different traits right because people abuse it a lot on <laughs> well we don't need to optimize this thing because whatever the computer will do it we're just going to use more resources in storing things and more resources and memory to do that thing it and it's a trade-off this is really interesting too because again these these changes and constraints um you know a lot of people you know one way to look at it is to say well people just write less optimized code now mm-hmm but another way to look at it is people write more readable code now. <laughs> they do. They do. Um, and there's there's trade-offs, right? And so that's that's another aspect of this that like as we as we increase um or or, or as we expand these limited these limited resources, mm-hmm. right? Uh, we reduce the limitation. Mm-hmm. Um, it allows us to think differently about the problem. We're right. solving the same problems. It allows us to think differently about the problems we're solving. And I think that's an important factor on what a Turing machine is supposed to be. Because I didn't say this part of it kind of on purpose. But a Turing machine is supposed to have literally infinite storage, right? So the the tape that a Turing machine as an abstract computer is supposed to use is supposed to be literally infinite so the idea is if you have infinite memory to store something in then what can you actually do with computation well you can do anything that computation can do but there is a serious constraint on physical limitations of objects because when you remove the turing machine as an abstract and you go into okay let's use a literal uh, vhs tape instead of using a abstract magnetic tape that exists in your mind that changes a lot of what is a machine able to do uh that's kind of an interesting thing with what what we view as the uh what what is what is the thing i'm looking for turing machines in and of themselves give you this happy idea that you can basically do anything Right. Right. Give you this happy idea that anything's possible. 
But then you dig into real-world problems that are proven to be computable by a machine in some way, but we don't have the power or the storage or the memory to load in 100 million thousand gigabytes of data at one time into a computer right. and then calculate based on that 100 million thousand gigabytes of memory that we've right. used. That changes what computation actually is when you go away from happy Turing machine land. Right, but then again, we can also get creative in how we solve for those problems because, okay, so... You know, maybe we can't load all that data at once, but maybe we don't need all that data at once. Like right. maybe we can use specific segments of that data. So we just need to find a way to store that data. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's across like a bajillion hard drives, but like we could do that. And then maybe we have some service that we target specific bits of data that we need when we need it. And now maybe we are going to be reusing some of that data. So we'll cache it for performance purposes and create kind of a second Turing machine machine kind of in between like that's the interesting part of this is like even once even when you're trying to tackle the big things uh you can use these concepts of a turing machine to to tackle them even once you have the constraints in place right you just have to be kind of creative in how you uh address those constraints and that's why people were developing um you know large and and uh, interesting games, mm-hmm. right? Long before they could expect people to install sixty gigs of crap, right? You know, and and so people have. We've always been trying to work around these limitations, and to some extent, they are hard limitations, right? Um, but we 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 can find these ways to start to solve the problems, and then eventually the technology kind of catches up, <laughs> right? So talking about interesting ways to solve things, I guess we can talk about <laughs> accidental interesting ways to solve things some, right some some prominent examples of accidental and interesting turing machines yes so <laughs> it's it's funny to conceptualize that ibm supercomputers are turing complete it's also funny to conceptualize that microsoft powerpoint is turing complete <laughs> so there's actually a really interesting thing about microsoft office we'll talk about later with the macros but I guess we can talk about it now because it's it's very important to why Office has definitely changed how they view macros over the years because yeah. PowerPoint is a very funny thing that using the animations in PowerPoint, you can actually use control flow. So when you have animations in PowerPoint and you have these stored values, well, those are the two things you need to make a Turing machine. So right. if you can animate something and go, okay, this animation makes this happen, well, that's branching. So you hit thing and it does thing, that's branching something. And then if right. you can store values at all, that means you can actually make a program run inside PowerPoint. Right, and the weird thing there is um, it's it's how you... in. I like to think of it as how you encode the information. Right. Right. So we're talking about storage. Previously, we were talking about physical storage devices, mm-hmm. but now storage is kind of um, it's the PowerPoint. Right. You know, it, you're you're talking about like physical like rectangles that you've placed in the PowerPoint that mm-hmm. will animate based on various things that happen. Right. And so now our storage medium is PowerPoint itself. Now, ultimately, we're still going back to the disk, but. 
in an abstract way, we can think of PowerPoint as the storage mechanism, and then PowerPoint offers us control flow. Right. They say, well, if you click on this, then this will happen. And then if this happens, then that can happen. And if right. that happens, then this can happen. And all of a sudden, we're, we're I now can't, can't imagine the kind of hell you would have trying to write something like that. But <laughs> theoretically... It- it's very interesting to think about it in that way of as long as you have this thing that haphazardly allows you to store values and let you move things based on something that's done, well, that's where the Microsoft Office macros come into play as one of the most malicious things that could exist on uh, Microsoft Word, which is made for making essays and making business documents. It's right. actually incredibly malicious because you open up this word document from the internet and all of a sudden well now the macros let you control things and they let you set values to things and then based on what values are you can make the macro do something right well well, that becomes dangerous because now all of a sudden you open up this file from the internet and it goes oh oh my god i'm a machine and it starts running right you have this unintentional Turing machine you just downloaded that goes, I I can do this. Yeah, I can do whatever I want. And I'm I'm gonna actually uh do a proxy attack on your memory and your machine by going through this program that never intended for that to happen. Right. And so this is this is what's interesting is that um I, I hadn't really thought about this before uh today really. Um but Turing machines uh are a vector for um, attack. Yes. Um, and that's why macros are so bad because macros are literally an intentional Turing machine. Macros are run arbitrary code essentially. Um, and here you go. And it turned out that that was a bad idea. And when we think about a lot of the things that various, um, both software and hardware developers do to secure things, it's about restricting access to memory and control flow. Mm-hmm. We're talking about restricting what kinds of things this Turing machine can do, because if it can do anything, someone will tell it to do something bad. Right. And that's why when you download a Word file off of the internet, macros are blocked by default, because right. <laughs> if they weren't, people would probably attack your computer. And animations aren't, because animations are really hard to program in such a way that they're malicious. Right. It's not an easy Turing machine to uh to abuse right but there are like there are levels to how easy it is to to uh to abuse or to use a given turing machine and when they're accidental typically it's hard to use them because they weren't ever intended to be used that way right um but when you hand over an intentional turing machine to someone you better make sure that you're ready for them to do whatever they want because yes Anything is possible. Um, so the the idea of how hard it is to use an unintentional Turing machine is is a really funny question because Super Mario World is <laughs> a good example of an unintentional Turing machine that's actually really hard to use but has been done before. So there's a YouTuber by the name of Seth Bling who actually did it with a, a real SNES went in and used bit injection on a Super Nintendo to program a bootloader into Super Mario World. So to break that down, 
he went into Mario, kicked shells a certain way in Mario on a, on a Super Nintendo, <laughs> and that changed the memory of the Super Nintendo in a way that he literally programmed a bootloader into this physical device. He uh, essentially hijacked the memory of the console to play Flappy Bird using Super Mario <laughs> World, the game, as a computer. It's That's wild. really meta. It's wild. It's crazy. But that, and so there's there's two ways I think that this can be used. And it's funny because, you know, one way is super harmless. Right. right? It's, Hacking... it's really It's really cool and it's really funny. And people make working computers in Minecraft. That's right. all. That's cool. Right. No, and that's really cool. And that wasn't really intentional. But right. now it's an entire feature of the game. And so there, there are these like kind of quirky, zany, like ah, look what I can do kind of things. And then there's the malicious side of it. Right. Right. A lot of um, we've we've seen a lot of um, CPU uh, vulnerabilities in recent years, um, and I think a lot of those are again just uh, an example of people being able to. I mean, ultimately, a CPU is a Turing machine, right? And so what do CPU developers do? They, they spend a lot of time thinking about how can we restrict access to this Turing machine, right? Right. CPU security is actually a really funny thing because you want your thinking rock to sit there and do <laughs> bit manipulation all day, right? but because there's the guy from... Uh, Russia or something, and he goes, well, I, I kind of like that CPU doing rock manipulation. I want to do rock manipulation this way. Well, you, you can't just have free-range rock manipulation anymore. I don't know <laughs> if anyone's ever said that before, but free-range rock manipulation is bad because as soon as you open up this, this venue of, wow, look at me, I compute. Well, can you compute the thing I want you to, even though you don't want to? Right. And so... What we do is spend all this time thinking about how to restrict access to this Turing machine, and and then the the you know malicious uh, actor is then trying to think of ways to to not um not directly you know program this Turing machine, but again, like you were saying, with it's the same concept as the guy who programs um you know who who messes with the Mario the Mario memory you know, to, to create a bootloader, it's the same thing. Right. It's someone trying to like give valid instructions to, mm -hmm. a, to a Turing machine to create an, a, an entry point. Right. And that's the scary thing to think about is that if someone gives invalid instructions to a machine, it, it doesn't really mean anything. Right. right. If they give invalid code to a compiler and it doesn't work, well, it doesn't work. But... If they give it something valid and they're smart enough to know how to give it something valid, like bit manipulation or uh, some type of really low-level assembly manipulation, things right. like that, that's pretty scary because then they actually know how to access something in a malicious way and right. do the thing they want to do. It's it's using um, it's using basically using valid uh, instructions to reach. Uh, which should be in valid states, mm -hmm. and that's that's where um, that's where those two things I think collide. Where the you know funny YouTube hacker uh, hacking Mario and the like malicious actor uh, collide. And there's various things that you know we can do uh, to kind of change this. I know a lot of the uh, CPU 
issues end up having to be patched at the OS level. Right. Um, because you can't change the Turing machine because you've, you've, it's, you've it, made it. It's a physical it's device. It's a device. Uh, it's a rock. <laughs> it, it, it's the thinking rock. <laughs> so, And that's, you, that's funny to bring up that all these things are normally done at the OS level because most things to do with securing a computer are at the OS level. Uh, especially when you look at uh, like the Windows operating system design of how it has channels for communicating with the processor right? that are not just, hey, you program, want use processor? Go use. Well, Programmer, meet processor. Do whatever you want. I don't care. Right. And that's why we have 20,000 layers of abstraction between any random program in memory and the processor. And that's why every time you install something, you have to click yes on an admin prompt. <laughs> Not my fault. You hit yes. So there's a huge thing of how how this relates back to security is actually really strange because as soon as you give any kind of program or any kind of device the ability to do anything useful because once something is able to do something useful, again, it just has to be able to do something on a condition and store something. Right. Well, that means that little macro uh, 10 key numpad that plugs into your machine, if it can store something and do something based on a macro button, then it can probably do something malicious. Right. And and the other side of that is it doesn't even have to be intentional. So um, you you can attack the CPU with another Turing machine that was in an unintentional Turing machine. Right. Um, so you, you, there's all these various ways in which um, you know you can you can think about an existing set of Turing machines as some greater meta Turing machine mm-hmm. and then abuse it. Um, right. And and so you can like I said we're we're talking about using valid uh, interactions, kicking around shells, right to get an internal Turing machine in a state where it does something crazy. Right. Something you, you know, no one ever intended. Um, and I think that's that's really interesting. And and so I think that's that's the interesting part of this conversation. I think a lot of times people hear Turing completeness and it turns into like, ah, Mario and like jokes and, and things like that. You hear but- Minecraft a lot referenced in <laughs> Turing completeness. Things like Minecraft are so interesting where it appeals to basically anyone. Right. Of, wow, I can use these little switches in Minecraft and it can do anything. People have actually written compilers in Minecraft, right. like, oh, yeah. uh, for writing uh, <laughs> Perl specifically, like writing Perl mods, because I believe up until recently when Minecraft was remade in Java, Perl was the specified language for writing mods. So people decided to write mods, they would write a mod to build a compiler in Minecraft to write right. mods. That's meta. Yeah, I mean it's crazy. So, but but I think the the flip side of that is that um, from a developer's perspective, what we're trying to do a lot of times with these various machines is, um, you know, to uh, restrict the the either to enhance or restrict the quality of the Turing completeness. In other words, making it easier to do more things or maybe harder to do more mm-hmm. things and to strike a balance. And where that gets interesting, I think, is with languages. Mm-hmm. Languages are pretty 
neat because we're moving away from talking about computers, but not really. So when we've referenced everything up till now about Turing completeness, it was the difference machine or some arbitrary com- computer that costs $100,000 to do 5 hertz. Uh, probably more than 100000 maybe a 100000 So in that perspective, these machines make a lot of sense when we talk about, oh, it's Turing complete, oh, it's able to do anything any other machine is able to do. Well, languages are also in that category of being able to do anything that the thinking rock can do. Well, <laughs> this thing can do it at that level to tell the thinking rock what to do, right? So I guess the easiest place to start is with assembly, especially. Assembly is pretty funny because uh, without going into the realm of esoteric languages that aim to be strange and abstract while still being Turing complete, which is a very common challenge (laughs) that most people who make esoteric languages try to reach. Like there's the language white space, which is made of spaces and tabs. It can do anything any other language can do. That language is funny because it's... It's also impossible to do anything useful. Yes. Um, (laughs) That's what's so funny about it is that there's no reason to do it, but you can. And that's where that abstract idea falls in there. So one of the best languages to talk about that's actually useful is assembly, right? Assembly is not a language. Assembly is a family of languages that aren't really a family. It's really any kind of language you write to interact with some kind of uh, computer architecture. So if you have an Intel processor, it probably has an Intel assembly language. If it didn't, it probably wouldn't really know how to do anything because (laughs) you need something to tell the thinking rock what to do. Uh, When you think about how assembly modifies registers and things like that, so the processor has registers, it has cache, it has all of that, the assembly language goes, okay, well... I want to put this thing here. I want to read this thing. I want to go over here and do this thing to this register. Right. It's it's really very close to what a Turing machine does. It moves through its code by reading something, and it manipulates registers. It moves to other registers and manipulates them. It's very simple. Right. And what we're really talking about uh, with assembly is like part of like it's it's like the other half of the Turing machine. Like we've been talking about the hardware, mm-hmm. but the hardware is just how the reading, writing, and storage happen. Right. They're not the other side of the equation, which is that uh, branching, right? right? And so the assembly is like the other side of the equation. It's like the assembly tells all that hardware how to be a Turing machine, right? how to branch. You have to have the box that tells the head and the tape what to do. Right. Because without telling the head and the tape what to do... It's not a Turing machine. It's just some some tape in a head that could write to something but right. won't because it doesn't do anything. So without having our assembly to tell our thinking rock what to do, the thinking rock can't do anything yet. It's capable of doing it as soon as you tell it to do it. Right. So assembly is really that funny thing of now we start to see what the point of Turing completeness is because if we have an assembly language, no matter how simple it is, uh, Older assembly languages, when you look at things like MIPS, I suppose, that's a language that's like, okay, it does cool stuff. You look at newer assembly languages that nobody actually writes in, really, right? because back in the day, people used to write code in assembly. Right. Now we have compilers that write assembly code for us. 
by using other languages. Right. And now you have these wacky Intel languages that do all kinds of neat stuff, but nobody actually really writes in them. They have other things to do that for them. Right. Yeah, I think I, I think that gets it. What we're going to talk, I think, a little bit more about in a second, which is kind of this like evolution of languages, because those those two language those two assembly languages are going to look vastly different, because one is meant for a human to interact with, mm-hmm. and the other really isn't. Right? right. The other one expects like ah, compiler's going to write this stuff, so uh, really, I just need to be compiler friendly, not right. human friendly. And there's kind of a, a funny waterfall effect that comes from that of we talk about assembly well assembly turns into ones and zeros for a processor because right. processors are really just uh it's hard it's hard to call them a tape but they're almost a tape in and of themselves they're a bunch of billions of positions right and they go here's a one or a zero and if it's a one it has an electrical signal that powers it and if it's a zero it doesn't right right well, for something to tell the thinking rock what ones and zeros it needs, it has to be Turing complete. Those ones and zeros are Turing complete because they tell the thinking rock what to do. Right. Since the ones and zeros can do the same thing as the thinking rock, it's Turing complete. On top of that, if you write an assembly language that makes those ones and zeros from it, it's also Turing complete. Right. If we write a language above that, like C that can turn into assembly, the C is also Turing complete. So that is where we get these layers of abstraction of the processor that at some point there's always some processor that does something. Right. And above that you have 20 different layers of abstraction of how some computer code is read and it turns into some other language. It turns into some other thing. It goes through this process of identifying what variables and what code there is, breaks it down into these uh, archaic structures that normally aren't read by people. And right. then eventually that goes into trillions of ones and zeros that do stuff at right. some point. Now, let's talk about one of those modern languages and talk about why it's so interesting, which would be Java, right? Java is a funny language because we can talk about Turing completeness and security in Java, and it's very relevant in both those regards. So Java doesn't just operate by going straight to the processor. Java operates on the Java virtual machine, right? Right. Java is not the thing that goes to your processor. The Java breaks down into the Java bytecode, which goes to the Java virtual machine, which does all kinds of stuff to interact with your processor in a safe way. Mm-hmm. Because in the 90s, it was realized that, well, we need to have a way to run this thing basically anywhere. You know, that's the, the Java slogan, write once, run anywhere. Three billion devices. Three billion devices. <laughs> it's always been three billion devices. The, the number of devices doesn't change. So... That you write the Java, it does all kinds of stuff to go to Java bytecode and interact with your computer. You don't touch the computer. And right. that's where the security comes in. It's actually been proven that Java is a highly safe and provably safe language because you don't a- interact directly with memory. The Java virtual machine has a reserved area of memory, which is, you can change that yourself. But Right. Well... This is, again, this gets into putting restrictions on that Turing machine. Right. Right. So we're saying, okay, well, 
you know, instead of um, instead of interacting it, interacting with it, and sending it directions directly through assembly, we're going to introduce this other Turing machine um, that uh, won't do as many things. Right. Right. Intentionally handicapped. Right, and it's still capable of doing everything it could without having that middleman as long as you meet the conditions, right? right? So the Java virtual machine goes, okay, I have this memory, and this is a very important difference from older languages. Now, I'm going to talk about C in a minute because C is a, <laughs> a very good example of safety being up to you. Uh, <laughs> Java doesn't really give you an option of whether or not you want to be safe. Java doesn't have memory pointers. It doesn't have go-to statements, at least uh, if I remember correctly, it doesn't. Um, if it does, you shouldn't use them. If it does, it probably screams if you use them. It, pro- <laughs> it probably wants to blow up if you try to do a go-to. And it does all these things to make sure that you can't just hop out and do whatever you want in a computer because... With uh, older languages, it was very common to exploit the language and do something unsafe to the processor or the memory of the computer to do what the person wanted to do to your machine. Right. And Java actually has so many safeguards in place to prevent that from, you can't access computer memory directly. You only access my virtual machine memory. I figure out if it's okay to go access that memory. Right. I'm the person who decides what to do, and you have no way to access any of those things directly on a yeah. machine. It's all contained to Java. Now, C++ is a funny example because C++ does not do that. You can access uh, machine memory directly through C++. Right. And that means if you want to blow up the machine by taking all of its memory <laughs> with a program that just keeps stacking on more and more assets, you can totally do that. In Java, it's a lot different because if the JVM hits its max, it won't necessarily blow up, but it will it'll, overflow. Well, it'll, yeah, right. But it won't blow up in the same way of you, you've literally taken the machine's well, memory directly. And in some cases, uh, it will... Uh, be smart and say, oh, uh, I'm reaching my limits, but you don't need that, and you don't need that. Mm -hmm. And we get the garbage collection, and then, you know, you don't have to say, like, you don't have to say, like, oh, well, I'm done with this, so I'm going to deallocate that. Mm -hmm. Um, And then accidentally reference it later and get some sort of fault or something. Right. So, I mean, yeah, it's, it's twofold. It's safety in terms of um, you don't get to access whatever you want, um, and that means that the computer does not have to worry about you trying to arbitrarily influence um, its memory mm-hmm. um, or its instructions. Um, and then from your perspective, uh, it's less work um, as a developer because now, well, I've got this other thing that's going to take care of that stuff for me. So, um, Right. So... Java, it's really funny to compare it to C++ because it's it's very slow compared to optimized C++ code. Right. But it's also very slow because it isn't going to let you absolutely destroy a machine in some way by directly ask, accessing processor ability and accessing memory ability. So it's that trade-off, too, that security actually takes a lot of overhead. Uh, right. If you want real security, it's going to take a lot of overhead on how you access things and how many middlemen there are to accessing things. Well, and the, I'm, I'm just now thinking of a parallel between this and uh, something we talked about in, in our Git Trendy, which is that, uh, that WASM. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's a sandboxed environment for you to run some arbitrary code in. Um, 
but like I said, it's sandboxed, so the the browser doesn't have access to everything, and the browser dictates what you get to access. Right. And actually, because the browser gets to dictate it, I, as the user, to some extent, get to dictate it because I set my browser settings. Right. And if you ask for permission to do something, I can say no. Right. Right. And so we're we're introducing these limitations on these Turing machines. They can do anything. Right. But then we say, but you won't do. <laughs> Right. This. <laughs> and that's a that's a really interesting thing of older languages uh I should I should say older in the sense of languages that were made haphazardly. Um <laughs> PHP is a good example of something that had a lot of haphazard steps in it, in its making. There weren't very many incredibly rigorous rules laid out right. for PHP. In a language like Haskell, Haskell is a purely functional language it is based around rules and proofs and that's right. a really big point that uh, a language like haskell is based around if you want to do something uh we we give you a way to do it but it's going to be rigorous and there's going to be safeguards and how things are done and we're going to have certain things that are optimized to make them safe and make them better and and there's there's degrees to how you can do this with any given language mm -hmm. i mean i think about the fact that in in for instance net um it's a similar to the jvm you know they have this this other virtualization mechanism the clr mm -hmm. right um but also you can actually if you want to like do crazy things like write unmanaged code, mm -hmm. right? Things that will be kind of skipped by some of the safety checks of the CLR and just run directly. Mm -hmm. um, now, anytime you do that, if you write a PR that has unmanaged in it, you're going to have coworkers that go, oh, no. <laughs> but, I mean, it's it's these weird degrees, right? Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, even now, uh, certain, certain .NET languages are still receiving different... Um, New features that that put certain limitations in place, right? Um, or that allow you to to write more safe code in certain instances, um, and so we we make all these decisions as we you know create and and modify these languages about um, how uh, not how Turing complete they are because at the end of the day they are Turing complete, but mm -hmm. but rather what what barriers we put in place um, and and. and what we, you know, how easy we make certain things to do. Right. And that's a big difference between writing in a language like Java and how many steps it has between it to accessing the machine and writing an assembly. Writing an assembly has very few rules often to how it actually assembles into right. binary. Uh, once it goes into the binary, there's not a lot of steps in between like the assembly you wrote and how it interprets it and turns it into ones and zeros. Right. Do whatever you want when the machine, you know, screams because like you you tried to jump to a memory location that doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. Sorry. Right. Um, you know. <laughs> and it's not necessarily uh just a complete low-level thing because C exists. C <laughs> is kind of a funny language to me. Because I, I've heard the term medium level before. <laughs> I don't even know where I heard it anymore because I might have made it up. Every time I try to find that term again, I, I don't ever seem to actually find it. But the, the idea that C is right above assembly is actually pretty good. Yeah. Because C is hard to write well. I actually, 
I started reading a book recently. It's called Effective C, right? This book was published this month of August 2020, the year 2020. C has been around for <laughs> decades. And there's still more books coming out about how to use it well. Because, how to write good C. <laughs> right. Because We've been trying for centuries. <laughs> the standard keeps changing, and actually they've just gone to another new standard of C17 is now old, and now C2.x is going to be a new thing that comes out. They're still updating C. It is wild that they've updated it for decades <laughs> when there was the C98 and the C some 2000 year standard it's it's crazy so why uh why is c such a bad language in terms of <laughs> it's uh really not even a language in and of itself as much as it is a standard right so the c98 standard is a very highly accepted one in the world of embedded computers and embedded microprocessors mm -hmm. so the c98 standard has a lot of different documentation around it as to how to write good c but also how do you write c that works well in the context of a microprocessor or some type of device that's supposed to be incredibly important for survival, like, say, the mm -hmm. embedded sensor in a car, uh, that <laughs> sensor has to work well. If you're going to write it in C, there has to be things to do done to it that make sure it doesn't freak out in some scenario and not work correctly, right? Right. So C is very funny because, because it is a standard and not exactly a language in and of itself that's maintained by one entity right? because there are all kinds of C compilers. C, the C standard, uh, as I've come to learn, uh, has really strange holes in it that are expected to be holes, but some of them are holes that are bad holes and some of them are good ones, right? So... C has what's known as undefined behavior in its standard, right? <laughs> of if you do this thing, it'll probably be bad. Don't divide by zero. Don't access memory outside of the memory that's actually available to the program, even right. though you can do those things. Yeah. You can divide by zero, and you sure. can actually use pointers in C to go outside of the range of memory that exists for a program and go... Right. I want to I want to access the thing that keeps the OS running in memory. <laughs> you can do that in C. They call it undefined most of the time because well, that's up to you. We don't know what it'll do. Well, here's a hint. <laughs> it'll be bad probably. Um, and it's also funny that the C standard has what's called implementation specific behavior. That means oh, no. that it's up to whoever writes the C compiler. So based on which C compiler you're using, the behavior is different based on who wrote it. We don't want to be responsible for how this part works. Yes. They, it was written with Damn. the intention of whoever writes the compiler, you choose what's going to happen here and you choose how it gets handled because Oof. It's, it's going to be more of a personal decision. That's pretty funny. And again, this is the result of... This language being able to do anything right. as a standard, an abstract standard especially, and then when you when you implement it, well, you figure out what it does. Right. Uh, and then, so that this is the interesting part, I think, about this, is that we, we 
we impose varying levels of um, of barriers uh, onto our various Turing machines that are languages. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so that's why I think it's interesting. We you know you have languages like Java or C sharp that are kind of middle of the road. They do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they, they are very strict about certain things. Mm-hmm. Um, there are certain security features and, and certain uh, restrictions built into the language, but they're also in a lot of ways kind of unopinionated and, and grab features from various other languages. And they're right. kind of a hodgepodge. They allow you to write in a number of different styles. Um, they don't force you into, um, you know, one way or another. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you have languages like, I don't know, like Rust? Right. <laughs> so when you move past C and you move past, uh, oh, yeah, you figure out what to do when you write the compiler. Um, <laughs> I still I still have a, uh, a, a query in my head of whether or not that is the How- smartest thing ever. Or um, uh, it's definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> Let me fill this one in for you. No, I mean for for me personally, I, I mean, I suppose I could think of some benefits, um, but just the the thing that stands out to me is like, who wants one more layer of options, like? What you're talking about is a is a is a situation in which I don't just have to s- shop languages. I choose C and then I have to shop compilers. <laughs> yes. That's actually a really big thing of <laughs> it, when you compile C code on one toolchain with one compiler, uh it's going to do something. If you compile that same C code with a different compiler, it does something different. That's pretty crazy because that isn't really how most modern languages work. Where even if you have a different right. Java, a different Java compiler, it it runs the same. Right. I think um, I, I just I don't see the benefit. I, I feel like um, there there's just. I mean, I suppose the only thing I could think is that it would allow you to write uh, a compiler that's uh, very targeted. Um, you know, where you can fill in the gaps uh, specific to what you want to do. So if you're writing a very, very targeted embedded system for a car, uh, then maybe you write your own compiler because there are spots in those, um, you know, in those deferred uh, decisions um, that maybe benefit you, I I guess. Right, and that's actually a, a really interesting point that certain C standards and certain C compilers are preferred for certain applications. So like when you're talking about writing embedded vehicle uh, C, there are actually preferred ways of writing C with specific compilers that, that are this standard. That doesn't surprise me. I still feel like... <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know that that's a big enough gain... It is what it is, um, you know, and people are going to do what people are going to do. Right. Um, And I think there's an interesting point in that uh, different C compilers mean that you can target C, the same standard, to do different things based on which C compiler you're using. Right. That's kind of a parallel with what we see happen today with language ecosystems where certain C compilers will have different support for different things. Well... Today, we have so many different languages that do 
the exact same thing, not even at the level of Turing completeness of it, it can literally do the same thing, whether it's C or if it's Java, but there are different rules in place. And C++ is a really good language to talk about uh, knockoffs, right? So C++ has a lot of languages that are designed to replace it. It's almost like making uh, the most successful uh, TV in history, and then other people <laughs> come in with their TVs, and they're like, my TV is better because the remote has more buttons. <laughs> people have done that with C++ for a long time. They've done it with C, too. Um, C has a lot of languages that have come in to try and replace it at a certain level, but C still manages to win out. Today with C++, it's kind of funny because there are so many uh, tribal groups of people who are uh, very adamant that the language they use is better than other C++ replacement languages, and also the tribe of C++ is the best. So what languages are there that revolve around this? Well, to name five of them that compete with each other, <laughs> C++ competes with languages like Crystal, D, Rust, and Zig, which is Zulu, Indigo, Golf, Zig. Zig is a really interesting language. It's really interesting to see like how it comes along and the kind of claims it makes because Zig is a very well-marketed and advertised language. The way that it comes across as we're going to talk about our language and talk about the development of it and talk about the people behind it a lot, it, it is actually a very interesting language. Uh, Rust is another interesting language for the wrong reasons compared to zig so where i find that zig has so much positive support in its community and its donors and the people who support the zig software foundation rust has a lot of popularity in being hated because of the type of people who like rust so zig and rust can accomplish the same things. Rust and C++ can accomplish the same things. So why are, do there have to be so many different languages that do the same things? Well, Rust and C++ are almost impossible to compare when you talk about security. Oh, yeah. Uh, C++ is wild. It will let you do all kinds of things it's, with pointers, dereferencing, it's, go, memory tracing. Uh, it's, it's comparable to C in yes. that way right it's almost a medium level language like you were saying before because do what you want right and c++ gives you so many different ways of uh control flow different ways of using data structures right. different ways of implementing crazy cool algorithms but <laughs> you can have a memory pointer to a memory pointer to a memory pointer yes uh four-dimensional memory pointers are weird <laughs> but it lets you do that because it decided that it was the best way to get things done rust is very interesting compared to c++ because people won't stop talking about it and comparing it to C++. So the reason people talk about it, and it, it's they they get a bad rap, I think. Um, I haven't. I written, know they do. I, I haven't written. I haven't written any Rust. I've I've played around with the the in uh you know Hello World you mm -hmm. know get started tutorials and stuff, but never. I, I be honest with you, I hate the syntax of C++ and Rust is the same. Right. Um. But. The the thing I think that that gets people so excited about Rust is that um, 
it, it, it takes the approach. So we've talked about languages that let you do anything. Mm-hmm. We've talked about the middle of the road languages, you know, C sharp, Java, those kinds of things that mm-hmm. they put some restrictions in place. Right. They put some security in place and then they kind of let you do what you kind of want to do. Mm-hmm. And then Rust says like, okay, look, here's the deal. All right. You can do like three things. Right. All right. Um, I'm going to scream at you anytime you do anything other than these three things. Mm-hmm. Once you've got your program all set up and it compiles because I've stopped screaming at you, mm-hmm. you'll never have to worry about any kind of memory safety issues, any kind of you know weird bug control flow issues. Um, if you can compile it, you should be like 97% sure that there was no bugs and everything is fine. Right. C++ is, uh, if you can compile it, there's a 97% chance that it's going to blow up. <laughs> there's a 97% chance of a seg fault. <laughs> C++ is a very funny language because you can do something that is directly just uh, having a, a null pointer and just saying, like, I, I want that. And C++, C++ will just go, yes, I'll compile that. Immediately blows up. It knew it was going to. It had to have, but it'll do it anyway. Knows that it can't do anything with a null pointer. It lets you say like, hey, here's this null pointer. Let's do this. And, and then, then it just goes, like, yes, oh, I'll compile. God. And that's where this really interesting, like, there's there was almost a shift in how people thought about compiling code because it used to be like whenever you're doing like an intro programming course, it's like, oh, you got the code to compile. That's great. And then further down the line, you realize that getting your code to compile is actually kind of scary because <laughs> if it compiles, there's probably something horribly wrong with it if you didn't spend hours determining that things that were wrong are now right. Yeah, so at first you're like, oh, there's this barrier to running the program. I have to get it to compile first. Mm-hmm. Then you get it to compile, and you realize very quickly that, like, okay, it compiled, but uh, it blew up three seconds in. And then yes. you realize there's a whole range of non-compilation error- errors called runtime errors. Yes, and that's <laughs> really kind of funny that a language like Java or C++ will sometimes, especially Java now these days, will throw all kinds of warnings. It'll throw errors for certain unsafe things, like, you know, set something to null or set something. That Branching is a really important thing in Java, right? So if you have this long line of if-else statements, and the only time that some null variable is ever assigned is in a bunch of if-else statements, it'll it'll yell at you about that. Right. Well, so I think there's this interesting development. I, I think it... I think uh, it kind of tracks with history. So you have these low-level languages and then the medium-level languages that allow you to pretty much do whatever you want, mm-hmm. right? Then we start to see these kind of high-level languages that are a little bit safer, but still they're not super opinionated. They're not going to restrict everything, right? Things like Java and C-sharp. But what happens is I think over time we build up this tooling around Java and C-sharp mm-hmm. and you start to get this whole world of code analyzers, Right, right. Which compilation is kind of similar to code analysis, right? It it tells you if the program will run before running it, and code analysis says like, hey, like this will run, but like uh, that looks like that could cause problems. Like you're you're that could be null here, and we don't you know you don't handle that. Right. And, and then I think people start to think like, well, like why? 
have the extra step? Why have it compile if the if the analyzer can tell me like eh, it could compile, but there's something here, right? Why not just bake that into the language? I think that's the theory of Rust, right? Um, and it kind of it kind of brings us back in a loop of it used to be especially in the early days like oh you got this java to compile and it runs and it doesn't blow up but it has all kinds of safety issues in it now compilations become an important thing again with a lot of languages like uh, especially rust and go rust and go are both really good examples of well-known well-established languages that have a lot of backing on them like go obviously has a lot of backing because it was made by google so it has to have a lot of backing well, Go and Rust are both so uh, so based on complaining about everything, I guess is the best <laughs> way to put it. It's like every time you try to do something in Go or Rust, it, the compiler complains about something because it's supposed to. Uh, Go, I consider to be a language kind of based around the hubris of the researchers that made it in a way that it was, oh, we're going to make a language and it's going to be really good. Uh, it's going to complain about everything, and random things will make it not compile. That right. was a basis of making Go, right? Like, you have to do things a certain way. There has to be a certain level of safety. And things like in Go, if you declare a variable but never use it, it throws an error on the compiler. Right. So it's just random things like that. Like, you you have made something and not used it. That is enough for me to say that you are not uh, competent enough to compile this. This, <laughs> this program is not competent, right. and it will not compile. So that's a really interesting thing that now, with newer languages, since safety is much more of a concern because we have so much power that uh, pro- uh, optimization for Java isn't nearly as important as a lot of other things like safety and right. having more functionality to get things done in a safe way. And since we have languages that are built from the ground up around safety, newer languages, things like V, Zig, Go, and Rust, those newer languages that don't have a reason to exist other than they're built from the ground up with safety and newer features in mind. Well, yeah, it's, it's so it's two parts, right? We talked about this um, some, which is that you know, what we've done is just made more uh, capable Turing machines by increasing resources. Right. So that allows us to be less concerned about those things you mentioned, performance, things like that. The other side of it is that we've learned, right? I mean, it, I wrote some C++ uh, in college. Mm-hmm. Um, I would never, never um, write production C++, um, mainly because I don't trust myself to do so. Mm-hmm. Um so that's, you know, I know that, right? I've done that and it was terrible, mm-hmm. right? And I actually crashed my laptop on multiple occasions because I ate up all the memory. Mm-hmm. And and we're talking like 16 gigs of memory. But, um, Just take it all. But, but, <laughs> but you know, so, so we learn these lessons from these other languages and we say, well, like, you know, I like the syntax of you know, C++, which I don't, but like, I like the syntax of this language, that language, but it's not safe enough. And there are way too many mistakes that I can make. And if I put up these barriers, yes, I might take a hit on performance. Yes. I might have some, some issues here or there, but I have reasonable expectation that, uh, it'll compile in a reasonable amount of time. Like we won't be sitting forever waiting for it to compile. It'll tell me what errors are there before I go to try and run it. And then when I run it, I'm reasonably confident. 
Right. Um, that, that we don't have to do a ton of worrying about the logic. Right. Um, if the tests pass, um, I, I, I should not be, I should not be expecting null reference exceptions or, um, anything, you know, memory related or anything right. like that. And that's a, a really big step in language development now where some languages are going to be so held back forever that they'll never really get to that point without a huge revamp. A language like Java. Java is permanently held back by the decisions that were previously made for it, too. But some languages uh, that are made now are going to have so many more opportunities because of the time that they're being made in where they can make these decisions and make them right from the very beginning. I, I imagine that if we had a, a chance to build large computational machines before the Industrial Revolution, that we would have probably made them work and then made them safer and made them better so that if uh, the machine ever locked up, it didn't actually explode and maybe had a sensor that would shut mm -hmm. the machine off if two gears tried to kill each other because you divided by the square root of negative one. And then the machine won't blow up exactly. Uh, and there are a lot of languages that are domain-specific, right? Uh, so let's go away from Turing completeness to... Yeah, so I, I thought this was interesting. I ran across an article that was talking about Turing completeness, but it was also talking about when you might not want Turing completeness, which right. I thought was an, inter an interesting take. Right. Because we've talked about how powerful Turing completeness uh, is, right? It, you know... It's so powerful, in fact, that we often find ourselves trying to restrict it in some way. Right. <laughs> um, but it mentioned that, that domain-specific languages are a good place to consider Turing um, incompleteness, um, specifically because um, maybe you don't want... Uh, maybe you do want to ensure some uh, resource constraints. Right. Um, so non-Turing completeness means that... Um, a program will never run forever, mm -hmm. right? Every program that you write will be finite. Um, there are cases where you would want that to happen. Right. If you have some sort of language that's really just meant for, you know, query this one thing and, and be done, mm -hmm. right? Well, then maybe, maybe you do you need infinite looping? No. I mean, it should just go do the thing and be done and come back and... Um, and, and so the, the article also was describing the fact that like the way you achieve Turing incompleteness um, is kind of by enforcing certain rules on programs, which right. again we're talking about like, I mean, how do you ensure that a that a language can never result in a program that runs forever? Right. Um, you have to heavily restrict looping. Right. Um, and you have to heavily restrict a, a lot of things to make right. that happen. And that's the thing of. Uh, restricting looping and determining if something actually executes and finishes, right. that, that becomes a very hard problem. Uh, in a lot of languages, uh, if you're going to have something that's fully Turing complete, that would be impossible to check, right? Right. So if something's going to be fully Turing, compl uh, Turing complete, you run into what's called the halting problem in there too, of how, how does something know if something runs forever well right. there are formal proofs about how that works of well if a, if there's a program that says does this program run forever can the program tell if itself runs forever 
telling <laughs> if a program runs forever, things like that. So you run into this really, it's very meta. Everything ends up being meta for some reason. But it's this thing of how how can you actually guarantee that something works? Well, domain restriction is very common for specific applications. Um, SQL used to be domain specific, right? And then as it evolved, it became non-domain specific because right. certain implementations of it, just like C, ended up being different. Like Microsoft has their T SQL things like right. that. Right, and well, and and then it starts to to morph and 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 it, I mean, it, at this point, like I I have legit seen uh, specific implementations of SQL for uh, very very specific um, Azure services that are offered. It's not T SQL. Don't get it confused with T-SQL. Because right. if you try to use the T-SQL commands, no. Right. Right? But it's SQL. Uh, or or in the documentation, you'll see SQL-like. <laughs> um, turns out it's just, it's it's been a standard for so long that people start to adopt it to do all kinds of things. Right. Right? And so once you start to get away from from that really targeted usage, it does. Right. So it makes sense to introduce some some more uh, more features and, and allow more things to happen, which is how you end up with SQL becoming Turing complete, right. uh, despite being Turing incomplete for so long. And despite it being very dangerous in a lot of cases <laughs> that it can be Turing complete because playing with data can be very dangerous in, in a yeah. lot of ways. Um, and I think it's funny to talk about domain-specific languages because there are languages designed to be domain-specific languages, and there are languages designed to write domain-specific languages. Uh, Racket is a very common example these days of it's a functional Lisp, which is a a horrible syntax. It sounds like a horrible (laughs) syntax. It really is. But it is insanely useful in the realm of writing domain-specific languages for, say, uh, an example that I've heard of is like quantum chemistry, so if you want to write a domain-specific language targeted towards quantum chemistry, well, you could use Racket to write that language that has very strict rules. It has very complex rules behind it, but it's not just some random Turing-complete language that just does anything. It has very set rules, and it's supposed to work in a very logical fashion. So those older logical languages, like doing lambda calculus, is you sit down and do logic, and it has very strict rules in how it works, right? Right. And that's our basis for functional programming, right? So what if you want to write your own whole new realm of like some language that's supposed to do something very specific and has very tight rules, because if it didn't, Someone would figure out how to break it, uh, especially when you think about, uh, say you want to write something spe- uh, specifically for some type of physics, maybe some realm of physics that's very hard, it's one of those things that Einstein talked about or something, <laughs> and it does all kinds of wacky physics stuff that isn't very classical and that isn't very straightforward. Well, mm-hmm. if you go handing off uh, Python to a physicist, that might not be the best way to give him some realm of doing this specific kind of physics. Right. So you might want to write him his own language for doing that realm of physics in something like Racket, where you go, you define all the structures of the language, you define what it can do. It's called metaprogramming, too, to use a language to do that. So it's it's meta all the way around. Well, um, what's, what's funny about you saying that is, and this is a little bit off topic at this point, but uh, something that I saw uh, while looking through... Um, 
various resources on F sharp because I've been trying really hard to uh, spend time with that language mm-hmm. uh, because functional um, is that um, one thing that they were her- heralding about F sharp and functional languages in general, but I think some of the syntax of F sharp specifically is that um, you can sort of end up with a domain specific language yes, um, because of the different union types and, and, and various, um, various structures that they give you. Um, you almost end up with this, you know, you can almost end up with this very, um, it's, it feels like a domain specific language mm-hmm. um, where you're, you're, you're doing very specific operations on very specific types. And it, it kind of reads like, you know, car go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And that's one of those advantages of that, too, like having those rigorous rules that functional languages do better than most other domains is uh, if you make it rigorous, then you can do all kinds of cool, neat things without having to go through a lot of the struggle of figuring out how to do those cool, neat things without uh, writing your own C compiler and then making it safe. Right. Well, and then on top of that, you have, I think, uh, and this is something we kind of touched on, but you know, you also have other languages that are pulling in uh, concepts from these other restrictive, uh, whether it be functional or, or something like Rust or something, these, these other more restrictive languages. Like um, I think uh, C Sharp recently got um, a syntax to uh, explicitly kind of denote when a reference type is nullable. Right. So, you know, previously and and honestly, currently for most people, because it's an opt-in feature, mm-hmm. um, reference types are nullable by default. So mm-hmm. you have to do all this null checking everywhere. Well, this is like, well, you know, what if I want the compiler to just be like, no, like nulls are bad, right? right? Well, then I can turn that feature on and suddenly like, you know, nothing is ever allowed to be null. Right. Um, you know, and s- unless you explicitly state that this is a nullable reference type and then the compiler is doing additional checks. It's right. forcing you, you know, and saying like, you know, when when you receive a nullable reference uh reference type, it's it's similar to nullable value types where you you explicitly have to check um, you know, what the value is or else, you know, the compiler will be like, oh, "No, don't do that." Mm-hmm. And so we do this this kind of kind of backporting of these various like type safety and, and memory safety uh, features onto existing languages. And I think that's, I think it's good for everyone, right? right. You know, we learn lessons through, um, you know, through using these various languages and, and restricting our various Turing machines in, in various ways. Right. So it, it has all these different things you can, you can dig down and find like uses for why you do something and find uses for why, why are languages different if, we just need thinking rock, right? <laughs> thinking rock, make go, and then we figure out how to make it think better or something. I don't think that's <laughs> very good terminology, but that's my interpretation of programming languages as an entire discipline is make thinking rock do better. <laughs> All right. Uh, we have been talking for quite some time now. Well, so uh, I think I think this is it for us. Um you know, we did take a hiatus, so I feel like mm-hmm. this is a good uh, reintroduction um, episode. We 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 covered a range of topics and uh, 